Hello again. Welcome to this week's episode of Knowing God with Heart and Mind. This is Pastor Dan speaking, and it is my privilege to serve you with this particular uh, form of outreach. It's uh, an extension of the ministry of Shiloh United Methodist Church in Jasper, Indiana, where I have the privilege of being the pastor. We are continuing our study with Christian Believer, a course of study created by the Cokesbury folks and uh, written by J. Ellsworth Callis. We're in week 19 right now, or lesson 19. Lesson 19, the mystery and message of the Trinity. And uh, so we're going to talk about the doctrine of the Trinity in a few minutes. But for now, I just want to remind you that this weekly podcast comes to you uh, as, uh, as another way of serving the uh, needs of the people of the church as we seek to become disciples in the fullest way and to seek those who can be disciples of Jesus. And in our hope of doing so, we might make the world different and better because Christ worked through us for his name's sake. That's the general idea behind this ministry, and uh, my hope is that we grow together in our knowledge and our heartfelt, uh, spirit-filled engagement with our Father in heaven. So the idea then to knowing God with heart and mind is that not only would our hearts and minds be engaged with God, but that we might be engaged with the heart and mind of God as well. This week, under the Nine Oaks here in Jasper, it has been uh, a, a unusually warm weather, but uh, warm-ish we should say, after taking a week off to celebrate Thanksgiving with family and to enjoy all of the festivities that are usually associated with the Thanksgiving holiday here in America. We uh, are back to work and back to recording the podcast, but I can tell you that around here under the Nine Oaks, the main thing is still raking leaves and uh, keeping the fire going in the fireplace and uh, now that the weather's warmed up a little bit, we're not using the fireplace so much. But, uh, you know, in the Midwest, when you get these balmy days in the late uh, fall and early winter, you get a little worried. It usually means there's going to be stormy weather, or it usually means that when the cold and the snow comes, it'll come with a vengeance. And uh, so we're all kind of enjoying this weather, but holding out... Uh, any kind of, of uh, fear or preparation just for the uh, inevitable uh, onset of winter. We're in the south uh, western part of Indiana, and uh, therefore winter is certainly going to come, and there will certainly be some snow and cold weather. But uh, unlike when we lived up on Parsons Prairie, uh, the intensity is probably not going to be the same. Uh, more likely, we just have a few storms where we get a great deal of snow or average snow, and uh, within a week or two, it'll probably go away. It's just kind of hard to tell, but uh, most of us down here start kind of anticipating these things and uh, trying to be prepared for something that is uh, is sort of random and intermittent. And uh, then, of course, every now and again, well... We do get a pretty good season of snow and cold, a pretty good 
period of time where we might go for three or four weeks where the snow remains on the ground. So I guess what I'm saying is, is if you live in this part of the Midwest along the Ohio River Valley, you're likely to have anything and you have to be prepared for anything. And uh, personally, I like a little bit of winter. You know, I, I don't think I want to live in a place where the winter lasts for six months. But uh, I'd be disappointed if I didn't get to see a little bit of snow and enjoy uh, a clear changing of the seasons. But uh, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. I hope you are having a wonderful week wherever you are. I want you to know I'm praying for you and uh, joining with you in whatever you put before God so that you're not praying alone. And uh, I ask that you do the same for me. But uh, for now, let's get ready to go into our lesson first with a prayer. Dear God, thank you for the privilege of knowing your heart and mind. Thank you for inviting us through Jesus to be your sons and daughters. Thank you for the doctrines of the church. Uh, an awful lot of Christians, including me, will sometimes wonder what earthly good the church does when it is so filled with corruption and and so filled with sinful people and so filled with uh, uh, rules and regulations that seem to be more out of a need for human control than spirit-led control. And yet, Lord, a student of church history quickly recognizes that in every schism, in every difference, in every conflict, in every scandal, there is an opportunity for the refining of the people of God called the church. And so we recognize that while this institutional system of religions and churches is deeply flawed and often damaged at times by the human uh, will, it is still the instrument by which people know you better. It is still part of your refining process. It is safe to say, Lord, that the longer you tarry before you return, the more sanctification will occur, not only in the individuals of the church, but in the church itself. And how will we recognize the sanctified church? Probably because this group of people this sanctified church will be those with whom your heart and mind are most in sync. And I pray, Lord, that we, the participants in this Bible study, might be those people. And so for us, for myself, for all who listen, I pray with hope in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. The Mystery and Message of the Trinity People who are Christians have been told to pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They have been told that God is three persons in one being. And uh, when people talk about God in their general conversation with other believers and non-believers, it really kind of depends on their mindset how much uh, they're going to say about one of those three persons more than another. And so 
by that I mean that some people will speak of God most the most of the time and only mention Jesus the Son from time to time. Others might speak of Jesus and Christ and those terms that describe the Son uh, as uh, as the primary figure to whom they or with whom they identify. And then there will be those who are totally into the Spirit and always speaking of the Spirit. And our doctrine of the Trinity says to us that they are all one and the same, that we are in any conversation, in any thought, whichever person of the Trinity we most identify with, we are still talking about God, the three persons and the one person, the one being God. Three persons, all unique, and yet all one with each other in the Godhead, as it is called. How do we come up with this concept? And it does seem like a difficult concept, especially for non-Christians and non-believers in general. It seems to those people outside of uh, Christianity that we worship three gods, or we worship some sort of weird, schizophrenic, convoluted god, or, you know, it's easy for people to find this whole process of, of uh, deciphering the essence of God in three persons and one being, and, and, uh, and it, as we try to explain it, we often make ourselves sound foolish to those who doubt the whole concept at all. And so, hopefully, this particular study will give us a better way to talk about it. I think I should start, though, by telling you right off the bat that it is not likely that you will come up with anything that makes it any easier for us to explain the Trinity than it already is. Uh, it is a fairly complicated idea. It is what, in church language, we refer to as a mystery. When we talk about mystery in the church, we do not mean a, uh, an unknown something that will become known as a result of our investigation. So if you like watching murder mysteries, if you like watching uh, or reading you know, mystery books and things like that, the understanding is, is that as you begin, there will be some sort of conundrum, some sort of crime that needs to be uh, uh Corrected. Uh, that is to say, someone has committed a crime, and the the person guilty must be found. You know that kind of thing. I mean, that's a problem to solve. It's a question to answer, and the understanding is that by the end, you'll know the answers to the questions. That's one kind of mystery. But in the religious sense, mystery means that it is one of those aspects of our faith that is dependent on faith more than explanation. And if I left it at that, it would seem that saying it's a mystery is a cop-out. But what it really means is, is that it is something that is simply beyond our ability to explain. And uh, you might think of it this way. There are many languages spoken around the world today, many ancient languages that are no longer used. But one thing that is clear is that if your native language is English— and someone is trying to explain to you what a certain word from a certain other language means, they might spend half an hour and a variety of sentences 
trying to give you a sense of what the word means, but then they would tell you in the end, you still don't totally get it. And so it's a mystery because of our capacity to interpret it in our own terms. So if you follow what I'm saying, it's as though the mystery of the Trinity, for example, is a very real thing, but it is a uh, concept that we can't adequately describe in our own language, and therefore it is considered a mystery. And it is also a mystery because there's enough evidence that it is to be believed, but not enough evidence for us to be able to prove it. And so, you know, that's, uh, that's kind of like in the court of law when they say that uh, you have sort of anecdotal evidence, you, have, uh, you don't have material witnesses, but you have enough uh, sub, uh, substantial evidence to point to a certain outcome. Uh, okay, so I'm going around in circles here, I think. But what I want you to take away from this before we even start is that we will attempt to evaluate the Trinity without expecting to answer all of the questions adequately by the end of our discussion. First of all, we accept that there is a Trinity because the Bible says so, and the foundational belief that must inform this entire course of study that we've been on for these 19 uh, lessons, and in our Bible study or any other thing we've done together, the fundamental belief is that the Bible is a holy document, a holy book that we trust is informed by God. And we believe that is an expression of the mind of God for the people of God. And so, that first and foremost is our premise. If you don't believe the Bible is true, then nothing I'm talking about will make any sense to you anyway. If you believe the Bible is true, then what you're doing, like me, is trying to learn truth in a more complete way and greater depth. And so, as your, your teacher and your friend and your pastor... I can assure you that I believe the Bible is God's word for God's people. I believe that it is a living word. I believe that despite the weaknesses of certain translations or certain human failings that occur in the rewriting of this book over the centuries and, and uh, uh, as it's being presented to us, it may at some point or another, have a typographical error or whatever, but what we find in it is a foundational, fundamental truth that is the heart and mind of God. And by that, it is inerrant. So, it isn't inerrant because one or two phrases that you pick out and know couldn't possibly apply to you here and now, uh, have to be obeyed anyway. It, it, it isn't inerrant in that way. It is inerrant in principle, meaning that that it's expression of the heart and mind of God, and it's in, uh, expression of the the uh, precepts of God or those absolute truths about God. And in in that respect, it is with uh, without error, it, it, and and that can be known not necessarily by being a 
a scholar of scripture who can memorize large pieces of it and recite it. To, it it's not like that at all. What it really means is, is that by studying the scripture, you become familiar with the way God operates, the values that God holds dear, the uh, character of God, the, the nature of God's being. Um, you, you begin to understand uh, this person in a way that you understand, say, your spouse or someone that you have known for many, many, many years. There are many times when they say and do things that don't seem in keeping with who you know them to be, but that doesn't change who you know them to be. And so you know the fundamental truth about the person that you know intimately, even though a single moment or word from them might give a different impression. And this is what we mean by the inerrant truth of Scripture, that it has in it those occasional errors in the printing and the interpretation uh, of certain words by the scholars who translated it. Uh, it has its, its uh, human touch, but after you've studied all of Scripture and really come to know God through Scripture, a clear inerrant truth emerges anyway. Okay, so let's let's give that old dog a rest and move on here. The Trinity then is informed to us by Scripture. It comes from reading Scripture and hearing these terms all used with equal value at different times and occasionally even all at the same time. For example, when Jesus gives the Great Commission in Matthew 28, he tells the disciples to go and baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Well, we believe Jesus is God in the flesh. He is of equal uh, has equal authority to God over all of humanity, over the church and universal. And therefore, we accept that if Jesus is telling us that we should go and baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that Jesus is saying there is such a thing as a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit. And yet, in other places, Jesus will say to you, the Father and I are one. Uh when Jesus breathes on the disciples after his resurrection and says, receive the Holy Spirit, it comes from him. You know, so, so Jesus t makes it clear to us that there are these three persons because he has spoken of them and incorporated himself with them in all that he has said and done. This probably could end the discussion right here and right now. But... We'll take it a little further and see if it gives us a greater depth of understanding. So, did you reading, uh, do your reading assignment? Did you do your scripture reading? Did you read Genesis and Deuteronomy? And uh, did you see how in the very beginning the Spirit uh, was present in the creation that God spoke into existence? Did you see uh, in the Deuteronomy how is Jesus, Jesus, I'm sorry, as Moses is speaking his final words to the people of Israel, he makes it clear to them that God is the Lord alone, that there is no, uh, there is no uh, uh, competition with God. Nothing could compete with God. That was what the whole Exodus was about, wasn't it? You know, Moses witnessed with the people how God proved his absolute authority over all other such beings or anything that would be interpreted as gods. And uh, 
And in that respect, it's being made clear to us in the words of Moses in uh, his Deuteronomy sermon. Basically, what he's saying to the people is, is uh, you know, God's it. That's all there is. And if that is true, then later on, when Jesus enters the picture and claims that he and the Father are one, he's saying that there is no other God. In other words, Moses is saying there's one God, one God only, and then Jesus comes along and says, I'm that God, and yet I pray to the Father, and I send you the Holy Spirit. And so he's basically identifying himself as one being in union with the Father and the Spirit, all one, yet three separate persons. Then when you read in the Gospel of Mark, uh, you begin to see the promise of the Holy Spirit's coming. And then in the Acts of the Apostles, you see that uh, the Pentecost has arrived, that, that Pentecost being a Jewish festival, but on that occasion, the Holy Spirit comes upon the people, and there is a whole new experience. Uh, we talked about this recently in, in previous classes, about the, the, the presence of the Holy Spirit is only possible because of, of Jesus taking away this uh, barrier of sin that separates us from God's loving energy expressed in the Holy, Holy Spirit. Excuse me. And then we begin to see how all of that works as the uh, story of the birth in the early church is unfolding in the New Testament. We begin to see how there is a testimony about Jesus, there is the authority of God as creator, and there is the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. And, and all of this is revealed in the scripture readings that you had. Jesus who says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I'm it. I'm the beginning. I'm the end. He is the one God though he is the person of God we call the Son. So, the church struggled in the early days, uh, needless to say, with some of these concepts. And we've talked about this to some extent already, but what we've come to know is, is that in the early church, the very creed that we are using for the foundation of our study is a result of trying to answer these questions about what the real nature of the church is and what the nature of God is. And so, one of these things that had to be clear was how is the Son equal to and one with the Father, and in what way does the Spirit equally measure up to those two other persons of the Trinity? Uh, one of the ways that this was explained was in some of the earliest councils of the church and um, those councils that led ultimately to the creation of this Nicene Creed that we've been using as our guide throughout this process. There were, in those beginning days, conversations that suggested that uh, that the Trinity was not a thing, but rather one person was expressing that person's nature in three different ways. And this was uh, difficult for the Christians who were trying to uphold the experience of the apostles who were now all dying off. Uh, and so they had to set it down on paper. 
and they had to make it something that we could then build on in the latter experience of the church. The doctrine of the Trinity, maybe more than any other, is basically something that follows experience. That is to say that people who are uh, believers in the church and the Trinity are people who will take this doctrine for granted without being able to explain it because it is sort of self-evident. Um, that is to say that not everybody who listens to this podcast is as intimately interested in the origins of this belief system or how it matters which one of the persons you talk about and so forth. The, the, how, we're not listening to that with the same sort of uh, faithless scrutiny that would be uh, the work of a scholar or something like that. Most of us simply know that it's true. Most of us believe that we have been created by a loving, benevolent creator God. Most of us know that the relationship between us and that God creator is damaged and that Jesus has somehow, through his life and death and resurrection, corrected the damage that was created and that he has left for us the very essence of himself we call the Holy Spirit so that we might be in union with him and the Father always and everywhere. And most of this is taken on faith for us. It's something that we don't necessarily have an explanation for, but when we're talking to those who don't believe, a lot of times they're looking at us and they go, well, that's fine for you if you can believe that. Or maybe they even look at us in a condescending way and say, you know, well, you're just a fool because you can be you know, led around and, and convinced to believe things that are so ridiculous. But what they don't know is this burning in our heart that tells us this is true. What they don't know is how any other interpretation makes us sick to our stomachs and makes us feel like we are being uh, unfaithful in some way. And, and it isn't the culture that we were brought up in necessarily. It isn't the church we went to or the belief of our parents. It's because once the Holy Spirit starts to take a hold of you, all of a sudden everything you look at, you see in a different light. And you get a different kind of, of understanding of the same thing that you might have looked at from a very cold and uh, analytical point of view uh, shortly before coming to faith. So this doctrine of the Trinity is a, a doctrine, unlike many of the others, that is more informed by faith than by specific um, uh, evidence. And the best evidence we have for the Trinity is in Scripture and in the way that the, the, the apostles, the way that, that uh, Jesus and the way that uh, uh, the authors of the various books of the Old Testament express God's presence and activity in the lives of the people. And uh, it really would not have been a particular controversy, if not for the fact that believing that an invisible God has a spiritual nature uh, is fairly simple, but when you believe that a person 
who walked the earth and looked like us and seemed like us in every way, even died like us, is claiming to be part of that unique being, that's what throws the rest of the world of believers, even our Jewish brothers and sisters. And so, you know, we have a, a, a trouble that arises because of the equating of Jesus, the man, with the holy God. And uh, there's where the Trinity kicks in. So it's sort of funny that we don't mind, or at least many people have not minded the duality of a being we call God having a spirit nature that is more often experienced than the very being and the presence of God. And yet, once we add a third person to the mix who is one of us, it seems a lot more difficult. I find myself struggling with this particular topic today, and it is no doubt because of the nature of this discussion and uh, maybe just because, you know, I needed to do some more thorough reading. But um, it's, it's one of those things that for me has become such a matter of faith that when I try to describe it to others, I have to be very intentional about uh going back to a place where I needed to have it explained to me. So I, I, I'm going to take, uh, I'm going to accept that I am inadequate in this case and read to you from the words of Dr. Callis. Um, here's what he says. What difference does this doctrine make? We can see his practic or the practical implications of the doctrine of God, of sin, and of salvation. But the Trinity... Whether or not our desire for practical benefits is believing, in believing is justified, specific benefits do exist. The doctrine of the Trinity is relevant to our lives, first, in that it reveals to us about God, in what it reveals to us about God. Theologians writing devotionally have always found the Trinity a deeper perception of the love of God. In the Trinity, there is fullness of exchange, a relational wholeness. God's very existence in Trinity is personal, communal, and loving. God exists as a loving relationship engaging the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Without the concept of the Trinity, we might easily reason that Jesus Christ is love, but God is judgment. Indeed, many Christians, not grasping the doctrine of the Trinity, no doubt do just that. But love is the essence of the Trinity, and it is as much present in the Spirit and in the Creator Father as in Christ who came to earth. When Jesus dies at Calvary, the love expressed is as much that of the Father and the Spirit as, if, as of our Lord Jesus. The Trinity is invisible, both in person and in work, and it is indivisible in its love, because the very character of the Trinity is its unity in love. This teaching has profound implications for understanding human personality, especially our intricacy and worth. Our contemporary culture is almost fiercely individualistic. In this regard, remember the distinction between the person and the individual. To be a person is to be who you are, but to be an individual is to assert your independence of others. We are never more personal than when we relate to others, either in revealing our own person or in inquiring into the person of others. 
But to the individualistic, but to be individualistic is to move away from personhood by exalting the solitary. In this highly individualistic culture, we need a true understanding of personhood. We might even say a sanctified understanding. Because to see persons rightly is to see them holy and holy too, that is, whole. Both of these images of the person come to us in the Trinity. The Trinity reveals the divine nature, not in individualism, which would, of course, give us three gods, but in relationship and community. When we sing, God in three persons, blessed Trinity, we're declaring that one cannot really be a person except in community. The independence that asserts itself in the contemporary mantra, what I do with myself is my own business, is a flight from personhood because it denies relationship to others. The Holy Trinity teaches us that because the Holy Trinity gives us an eternal paradigm for personhood. So, I really like what he's saying there, and it really is more in keeping with a general theme that I preach on Sunday mornings which is that God cares deeply about our relationships with others. And the fact is, is that selfishness and pride are, in a sense, one and the same thing. That it was the pride of Satan, or the one called Lucifer, that caused him to want to separate from God and for uh, him to separate from the heavenly hosts who remained loyal to God. It was pride that caused Adam and Eve to question God's character and to disobey God's precepts. It's, it's pride and selfishness. It's whenever I think that what I need and what I want is more important than what God needs and what God wants or what anyone else needs and wants, that I am no longer really human. And this is what the Trinity teaches us. Us. The Trinity teaches us that even God lives in community, and therefore the person of God is divided in these three ways so that God is relational. And so, whether we like it or not, and I'm talking to you as an introvert, as a person who finds it much easier to sit here in a quiet room by myself and talk to you through the microphone than to spend time with hundreds of people trying to carry on a conversation with a few. You know, I get exhausted by uh, external uh, extroverted activity, and so I like my solitude, but I would not want to live alone. I would not want to live without other people in my world. And I think that instinct is born out of our very nature as the children of God, as the very essence of God's uh, self in the way that God has created us in God's own image. We need each other. We need to be in relationship with each other, and the Trinity is the demonstration of that. And just like the Trinity, we're all unique and yet uniquely fitted together so that we are one body. I love how in the language of the church we refer to it as the Catholic Church with a small c, which means the church universal, or the body of Christ with a capital B, or the church with a capital C. Those are just little things, but what they mean is we're not talking about a particular religion or denomination or even a person. We're talking about one group of people who, because they were born again, 
got the same bloodline as their Savior, and therefore your born-againness and my born-againness make us brothers and sisters because we're now one in the blood of Jesus and one in spirit with Jesus through the Holy Spirit that he gives us in our new birth. And so we really have to embrace the Trinity, if not in a sort of uh, mystical way, but in a very practical way. This is a statement that God makes in God's very being that we are made for relationships with each other. And there are no lone wolves because a lone wolf is a proud individual who doesn't need anyone else. And that pride is the very essence of sin. And so, with that being said, I think it's time for us to wrap this discussion. And I know that it's probably left you with more questions. All I can say is I'd be glad to talk with you about this anytime. We can get together and talk more. And, uh, you know, whenever necessary, you can always write me an email or something and say, you know, I, I wish you'd go back and hit that one again. And... Uh, Anyway, this is, this is where I would like to close today. So I'd like to read to you the prayer of Julian of Norwich, who lived from 1342 to 1416. God, you are Trinity. Trinity is our maker. Trinity is our protector. Trinity is our everlasting lover. Trinity is our endless joy and bliss. By our Lord Jesus Christ, and in the Lord Jesus Christ, blessed be our Lord. Amen. Next week, God's called out people. Next week, belonging. It goes beautifully with what you've just heard about the Trinity and about the idea that the Trinity is a practical expression of the community that God desires for us to be. And so, next week, we'll talk about how we live into this existence as God's particular community. And uh, our hope, then, is that in doing so, we will become, in our own way, a more intimate and beautiful community together. I remind you that this podcast, even when it's really, really good, and even when it's really, really bad, <laughs> is a creation of yours truly, Pastor Dan, and it is something I do for the benefit of those who uh, are not able to be in church or Sunday school on a regular basis. It's not meant to be a replacement, though. Uh, this podcast was born a couple of years ago, uh, three or four years ago. It was born out of the conversations that I had with some people who worked in factories uh, doing shift work. And what they said to me was, it's really hard for me to get to church because I work these different shifts and I'm sleeping during the day and working at night. But I can tell you that I listen to your sermon recordings while I'm working on the line in my job. Well, when I heard that, I thought, well, if you're listening to my sermons, maybe you could be a part of a Bible study in that way as well. And so I started toying around with doing Bible study in the form of a podcast so that those people would have something they could go to each week while they worked in their construction or their work in their uh, uh, factory lines or whatever. And so that's kind of how this thing was born. And I've kept it going because it seems like there's always somebody out there who is looking for something to listen to in a podcast 
that uh, feeds their soul. And I thought, well, I mean, I, I'm no expert. I've heard much better podcasts, but I'll give it a try. And uh, so that's kind of how this thing came to be. And I hope that it has been a blessing to you. And uh, I hope that you will help me make it better by contributing your thoughts and uh, your participation is welcome. And uh, in the meantime, do go to church somewhere. Be a part of a family of faith. You need to be a part of a community of faith. You can't do this alone. There's no lone wolves in the world of our Trinity. The Trinity says no lone wolves. We are part of Christian community. We're part of the body of Christ. Connect with other believers. If, uh, if you're not part of a church, look for one. It's okay. Not all churches are perfect. And in fact, none of them are perfect, but not all churches are even healthy. And there will be those churches you'll visit that are in poor health and uh, the people have given over to pride and things. And, and I'm not going to lie, that happens all the time. But keep shy, you'll keep trying and you're going to know when you've been to the church where God wants you to be and to grow. And uh, you'll know when that has happened, and you'll be a part of it because the Spirit will witness to you in that way. Uh, If you're in the vicinity of southwest Indiana, and Jasper in particular, we'd love to see you at uh, Shiloh United Methodist Church. If you want to know more about Shiloh, just visit Shiloh, U-M, that's S-H-I-L-O-H-U-M.org. And uh, you'll learn a lot more. Keep an eye on that website because it's going to upgrade and change significantly soon. And uh, so I look forward to that time when I can meet you face to face, whether it's in church or when Christ returns. I hope you're having a wonderful Advent season as it begins this coming Sunday. And uh, I look forward to meeting with you again next week to be God's called out people. God bless you. Goodbye.